Stanford University. Welcome to our spring Coverly lecture. I'm Deborah Stipek, and I'm the Dean of the School of Education, and I'm really delighted that you could join us this afternoon. Traditional teacher preparation is under assault. Actually, schools of education are under assault to the point that deans feel like they have to defend not just our practices and policies, but our very existence. The reasoning goes something like this. K-12 education is not doing a very good job. Teachers, therefore, teachers are not very good. Therefore, we should close the institutions that train teachers. It's simple. The conversation, I think, has been, for the most part, not very well informed and a little bit overly simplistic. So our goal for this afternoon is to promote a better informed and more productive conversation about how to recruit, prepare, support, and retain effective teachers. We have three rock star panelists who have extensive experience with both traditional and alternative strategies for preparing teachers. They're extremely wise, and I'm planning on them helping us design strategic efforts to improve the quality of teaching and learning in this country. So don't feel any pressure at all. <laughs> so let me tell you a little bit about our panelists. Deborah Ball is the dean of the University of Michigan School of Education, and is an expert on teacher education, mathematics instruction, and interventions designed to improve their quality and effectiveness. She has served on national and international commissions focused on policy initiatives and the improvement of education, including the National Mathematics Advisory Panel, to which she was appointed by George W. Bush, and the National Board for Education Sciences, to which she was appointed by President Barack Obama. I think the combination is as impressive as the panels themselves. <laughs> More recently, Phi Kappa Phi, the nation's oldest, largest, and most selective all-discipline honor society, inducted Deborah as, their, as a 2011 honorary faculty member. Some of you may have heard Deborah earlier this week on uh, National Public Radio's Morning Edition talking about how to evaluate teacher education programs. In her spare time, when she's not being a dean, doing research and on panels or radio shows, she continues to work every summer in a special turnaround elementary program for entering fifth graders just to keep current with opportunities and challenge uh, of education. Stephen Farr is the Chief Knowledge Officer at Teach for America. I, I, I just love the idea of being in a knowledge officer. That was so cool. I'm going to call myself the Chief Knowledge Officer of Stanford School of Education. I, we don't have one, so, you know, I'm the dean. Can I point? Anyway. He studies the distinguishing strategies of highly effective teachers in low-income communities. Those findings which inform TFA's teacher selection, training, and support are featured in his book, Teaching as Leadership. At Yale Law School, he focused his studies on education equity lit litigation and co-authored The Edgewood Drama, An Epic Quest for Education Equity that was published in the Yale Law and Policy Review. Steve was a member of the 1993 Teach for America Corps in the Rio Grande Valley teaching high school English and English as a second language. So just a little insight into Steve's um, personality. He turned, yeah, he's worried. <laughs> he turned 42 weeks ago. So what did he do for his 40th birthday? He went to, on vacation to the Amazon where he caught and ate piranha. <clears throat> Knowing that he liked it, that's what we're serving for refreshments this evening. <laughs> our, own, our own Pam Grossman is the Nomalini Olivier Professor of Education and Faculty Director of the Center to Support Excellence in Teaching. Pam's expertise includes teacher education and professional development and the teaching of English. Her current research focuses on the classroom practices of effective middle school English language arts teachers and this work is part of the Measures of Effective 
teaching project that is funded by the Gates Foundation that um, some of you may be familiar with. Pam is a former English teacher, and at Stanford she teaches prospective English teachers in the teacher education program. I don't know what Pam did for her last birthday, <laughs> but I know she is an avid Giants fan, so it's more likely that she was eating hot dogs than piranha. Please, please join me in welcoming Deborah, Steve, and Pam to Stanford. So here's how this is going to work. I'm going to start out by asking our panelists some questions. I hope to create a little controversy in the process. And uh, we will leave 10, 15 minutes at the end for uh, questions from the audience. There are mics uh, at either, on both sides of the room. And I'm going to ask you now and probably will remind you so that we can have a lot of people have an opportunity to speak and ask questions to please try to keep your questions to one sentence as opposed to a speech. OK, are we ready? So my first question is, and you can answer in any order you want, um, we have a long history in the US of teachers being prepared in colleges and universities. Um, what's wrong with that? Why is this under attack? Um, and why are we even talking about alternative pathways into teaching? tackle that first. Uh, historically, teachers actually weren't prepared in colleges or universities. And having completed the eighth grade, if you were a good student, uh, you could then be recruited to teach. Uh, the, the assumption was if you knew the curriculum, you could turn around and then teach it to others. Starting in about the 1830s, uh, we developed normal schools that began to be the focus of higher education uh, for the preparation of teachers. And normal schools lasted about 100 years uh, and really were the beginnings of what we know as the state university. So San Jose State University began as San Jose Normal School. Um, as the normal schools that were very connected to practice and their sole mission was to prepare teachers generally for local schools, uh, began to shift into the university culture, um, the university began to distance itself from practice and began to put teacher education rather than at the center on the margins, even as teacher education provided a lot of the funding for many of these universities. So I think partly historically, the transition from normal schools into university-based teacher education has one of going having the preparation of teachers from the center to the margins. Um, I think part of the critique of university-based teacher education is that the preparation of teachers has been disconnected from the realities of classroom practice. Um, you've all seen the surveys that suggest that superintendents, uh, principals feel that the things that are being emphasized in schools of education are not necessarily the things that they most care about. But I think that paints uh, university-based teacher education with a very broad brush. But I think the basic critique has been around the extent to which the preparation of teachers has been focused on preparing people for the demands of practice. So Deborah, let me ask you a follow-up question on that. Does that mean that we should go back to normal schools? You're asking me that? Yeah. I actually don't think this is quite the right question to be asking, because I think what's wrong is that we have no system whatsoever for ensuring that the people we ask to take the responsibility of ensuring that young people can learn to read, do math, get acquainted with the culture and arts. We have zero system in this country for that. And it's actually quite appalling because children are the people who teachers teach and we are alone in having absolutely no systematic way to ensure that that responsibility comes with any kind of demonstration that they know what they're doing. So to me, it's not an interesting question about colleges of education or alternative routes, it's that we're staring at a problem that nobody wants to acknowledge, which is we basically don't care whether people know what they're doing before they begin to practice on children. So you would propose uh, some sort of performance way of looking at it? whereby we agree on a set of things that people should be able to do before we allow them to practice independently on children. We do nothing less than that for flying planes or cutting hair or performing surgery, but somehow children, it's okay to be pretty smart, really love kids, and be willing to work hard. Imagine if we did that with flying planes. You've always liked planes. You know a little bit about physics. 
and we say, you know, fly a few, take a few flights. If you don't crash too many times, we might let you continue. And if you do, we'll ensure that you don't continue. And I think fundamentally this grows from a few things. We don't actually think this is very hard work. We don't think we know how to teach anybody to do it. So we throw up our hands and we go to all kinds of other strategies. But the question for me about colleges of ed, while I agree with the history that Pam gave you, I don't think is the fundamental problem of our time, isn't who's providing. It's that either we're going to say that this matters and we're going to build a different system, which is about the performance of the people and their results, or we're going to continue to battle over who provides the people. Okay, well, let me press you on that a little bit. So if you really look at performance as being your standard, there still has to be a delivery system, doesn't there? I mean, we, if, if I was a college major in mathematics, um, I have to have some route by which to learn the skills that I need to be able to perform on your national assessment. Well, maybe it will turn out that if you have studied math in such a way that you're constantly thinking about how other people think about that math, and you're fascinated helping your classmates, and you're work very hard at it. It might turn out that you could pass my performance assessments without going through any program at all. All I care about is that you can do those things. It might turn out that although you've always loved mathematics and you think you want to teach, that you would need quite a lot of help in order to be somebody who could help other people learn math. I think that question's a really important and interesting question, is what are the range of ways that different kinds of adults would need help to get to that bar that I'm describing? And I think that is something we need to experiment with. What I don't think we should be experimenting with or leaving so much to chance is whether people can figure out the fundamental things that it takes to help kids learn. We know quite a bit about that. Why are we leaving that to be for each person to learn to figure out on their own? I know I'm saying this a bit extremely, but mm -hmm. to put a point on the matter, that is roughly what we do. Mm -hmm. Steve, what would you say about the delivery system, about how, what, we, what kinds of support systems we create in the country to provide the opportunity for people to get the skills they need to be able to perform effectively in the classroom? I would say agree. We have a non-system. We have much of what we're doing in our various programs is compensating, trying to compensate for the lack of what we know it takes to create an effective organization and system in any other sector, which is got to recruit people that we have that we have reason to believe have whatever it is, qualities, knowledge, skills that are predictive of the outcomes we want, which is student learning. We've got to select based on those issues. And generally in the system, we don't do that. You know, and I know I'm overgeneralizing here. Mm -hmm. Either not very often in schools of ed, not very often in districts. Um, and we need to create a learning loop that is, treats the people in our system that are most successful as our experts learn what those patterns are, as Deborah's talking about. I, you know, I think there certainly is room for a common core set of actions that we know are necessary for student learning. The, the, the place that I'm worried about that, like, you know, you're right, we don't send pilots out into the world without X hours in a flight simulator. The fact is, flying a plane is a lot easier than teaching children, and it's, I'm not so much worried about getting to the list of what those things are. I bet, honestly, in an hour, we could come within 80% of whatever that is. It's what's the flight simulator that we're going to have. The two questions I'm really worried about is how, one, how do we change adults' behavior to embody what we know works? And that's very, very difficult. And I think in our various overlapping learning curves at Teach for America, I think that's one that we're really wrestling with. You know, I think that we've gone a long way from understanding what our most effective teacher's doing and saying this is what we all aspire to be. But changing people's behavior to embody that every single day is a whole nother puzzle. And mm -hmm. so that's one question. And the second hard question is, how, what proxies do we use to give us confidence that someone will do that next year before they leave our house, mm -hmm. and which is really what is our flight simulator, and that is where I, and maybe this is a, a point of disagreement, I, I hate the idea, and I, Teach for America is accused of this, and I, I don't actually think we do this, I hate the idea of saying let's just practice on the kids, but the fact is, one thing we've learned I would say for sure is that if you give me a hundred hours in a lecture with 
teacher candidates versus two hours on their feet, responsible for learning, with meaningful, productive reflection and coaching, we can change behavior more in the process of the teaching than we can talking about it beforehand. And, and this sort of breaking down of pre-service versus in-service and teaching, treating teaching as a learning adventure, a learning action, has to be the answer somehow. And mm -hmm. it's, it's where, you know, I, I, I saw this question, like does teaching, teacher education have a future? I, I, you know, I hope I'm not supposed to be the no guy on that <laughs> sitting up here with, with the deans. But I do think, if we think about this from a school leader's perspective, there is no way I'm going to get my school to where I want it to be without thinking about the learning that my teachers are going through wherever they are in their cycle. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where I have lots of optimism that we're going to make progress. Just so you know, we chose the title to be as controversial as we could because, but, but I want to, I, I want to try to divide this because you're, you're, you're answering a lot of different questions and I want to divide it between the idea of having some sort of performance standards, which you do whether you want to, as you say, whether you want to cut hair or fly a plane, you've got to meet certain performance standards versus the strategies that we have in this country to support people to get there. And I'm talking right now momentarily, and I, I agree, I, mean, I understand the, the continuity and the importance of continuing, but momentarily, before someone has a responsibility of our children's learning and, and the children in the community, first let me start with the performance standards. Is there enough agreement in the field? Would the three of you agree about what they should look like? That, that we can comfortably implement them and say every teacher in this country should achieve or demonstrate these performance standards? I think there's a really good chance we could agree, as Stephen said, on 80% of these. I think what we've never done is find the right grain size for these. So there was a history of competency-based teacher education in which teaching was micro-analyzed into these teeny little behaviors <laughs> that you couldn't reassemble into anything remotely looking like what any of us does when we teach children. But then most of the things we currently see are so global as to be ridiculous. Saying something like, the teacher uses effective instructional strategies to challenge young people, that's a definition of teaching. So that's not breaking down teaching into anything like practices. So if we could agree on a grain size of specific things that we think people need to do, like be able to detect common patterns of kids' thinking in specific subjects, identify those, the predictable things kids are likely to do with certain topics, and be able to identify two or three things that are the most likely next thing to do, or lead a whole class discussion in which you compare a variety of solutions to a math problem or discuss a novel, I think we could probably agree on a reasonable set, even if we could agree on 75% of those at the right grain size that would allow us to share the work of what you're heading toward, which is how do you assess whether someone can do it and will do it, and how do you help people to do it? Because although I said earlier that some people might just figure out how to do this, teaching is complicated enough that I think most people actually do need very specific training, coaching, feedback, mm -hmm. opportunities to rehearse. Most people do not figure this out. Most of the things I'm naming are not natural. Mm -hmm. They're not things people just know how to do. And I do think the question of how we help them, but on whether we could agree, and we wouldn't have it perfect. I think we'd have to make our best bets, study to see whether when people can do those things, kids actually learn more, and we'd have to revise it. It wouldn't all be perfect from the start, but we could do a whole lot better than we're doing right now. I, I agree. I think actually there would be quite a bit of agreement um, once we got the grain size right. Uh, we agree on these global things and it's then beginning to decompose those global things into specific sets of practices and then the belief that we actually can teach people how to do these things. And again, I think the hypothesis that teachers are born and not made is the one that we're sort of wrestling with, that these are actually, it's, a, it's an aspect of skilled human performance that like other aspects of skilled human performance, people get better at when they see what the practice looks like, they see what it looks like at high quality, they have opportunities to try it out, and they try it out in low-risk settings, so where you're not hurting the, the clients there and they have feedback on that before they then go into supervised practice. Again, other professions and occupations have procedures for inducting people into the profession where they don't have full responsibility for the outcome um, initially until they've had a chance to develop those practices. So do you all agree that there should be national performance standards for teachers? 
I'm looking at you, Steve, because yeah. you're the only one who hasn't jumped on this band, this wagon. I mean, I, so my concern, I would love for us, I would give up all, like, what I would just say, I don't care which ones we use. Honestly, it's only getting us 10% of the way there. Like, I would give up all power on that, pick some, if we could guarantee that we're going to implement them thoroughly and meaningfully and they're not going to become another checklist, then that's where the hard work is, right? And so I, I, I applaud, would love for us to have common core teacher actions at some baseline and I have no doubt we'd come to agreement. And again, I would not, I would not want to argue much about the details of that because I think the hard part is still to come, those two questions. How are we going to actually ensure that if we say these six or ten or dozen things at this grain sign size are what you have to have to get into the classroom, that that's actually followed? Because we've actually had lots of things that I think people would have said were meant to do that. And what actually happens is they get implemented at whatever level you need to fill however many seats you have in the school, and it becomes you know, the norming and the sort of holding that high bar is what I'm most worried about. And then the question of how do we get people to embody those? And I think there's a lot of excitement, exciting opportunity there that there would be many paths to getting people to embody those. And some people would put, as we were saying earlier, like lots of bets down on selection and maybe they wouldn't need as long a time of practice to get there. Other people would say, you know, we're going to be more wide open on the front end, but you're going to have to practice, practice, practice to get to that point. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's 90% it's implementation. I'm making up these numbers. Mm -hmm. So, and, and that takes me back to, like, of course I would agree, but then I think, oh, the hard work's still in front of us. Mm -hmm. but, it, but you would agree, perhaps, that it's necessary, although not sufficient. It just, it's like a first step. Yes, yes. And, and to, to Deborah's point about these would evolve over time. I, you know, I have no doubt. We, we crosswalk our studies of what we're seeing our most effective teachers do, and we, we map that out under a rubric. We crosswalk that with every teacher performance model that we can get. And I can say right now, I don't know, 60, 70, 80% is very similar to Charlotte Danielson's or to class or to anyone we pick. There are things in our context that are louder that I feel very strongly about setting big goals. We're, we're in low-income communities where generally our teachers are working in a dysfunctional setting where they're having to sort of create an island of excellence despite what's going on in the school. And that creates certain, sadly, unnatural pressures that probably shouldn't be in the national model because that's not how we want to be. That's just what we're seeing. Um, you know, and the, these teachers are putting much more emphasis on well, some of your work, actually, you know, the motivation theory than they're treating that much more heavily than many of the teacher performance models that we crosswalk with. So the things I feel important that I would supplement in our program, but there's certainly a basic set of things that I just don't think we'd have an argument about. I, mean, I guess just to push a little, I think the gap we're trying to fill here somewhere is a space that's been left very wide open. So when I said earlier we have no system, probably a lot of people don't know what we mean by when we say that because we have a ton of teacher education in this country. So when I say no system, we have no agreement on these things that I think are more than 10% of the game, which is what is it we're talking about when we say we want kids to learn in school and we want them to learn more than a year's worth of growth when they really haven't been learning. We want really good results. So keeping your point about results in the picture, I think what we're doing is we're putting a lot of people in classrooms and making them figure out on their own how to get kids to have that kind of learning. We can do a lot better. So yes, it's about implementation, but it's got to be connected to the kids' learning, which is kind of usually the thing you want to emphasize. Well, it a lot. is. So I mean, this is that. statements against myself. Yeah, right. but let's give this people a leg up so that they can actually get those kinds of results and not make them, oh, like I, I wonder what I should do in order to get my, you know. So I think it's more than 10%. I think it's about getting the kids to learn and giving people some good tools at the beginning that are more than standards. They're actually practices, like things you can learn to do yeah. that are about getting kids to learn, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and I don't want to quibble about the numbers, but I, feel, I hear you saying 10% is too low when we're talking about the importance of this. I'm just talking, and, and this, is, this is the work I do, so it's, it's against my own interest. I think the work I do is the easy part, which is learning from great teachers about what they're doing. That's hard. It is hard, mm -hmm. but it is... It is Right, it, it, like we have a, it just doesn't solve the problem. Absolutely. If we had from on high, they said, here are the things. 
You're right. We're but still right now, we don't even do that. So that's only right. the first step. So right. maybe another way of right. thinking about it is once you have that, what's next? Right. So how because do the, the hypothetical national standards of practice, not of what you know, but what you can do, uh, how does that map onto the national board certification that we have now? I think it's an issue of grain size, probably, that the grain size of the national board is still fairly broad, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to the more defined set of practices that we're talking about, learning to elicit student thinking, learning to facilitate a small group discussion. Those are very fine-grained, more fine-grained practices. It's also a sense of, I think what we're talking about here is how do we define the fundamentals of teaching? Things that teachers need to know, um, when, whether they're teaching um, in a scripted curriculum or they're teaching in a workshop kind of model that cut across some of those, but that are appropriate for teachers as they begin their career. So they're quite different than the national board in the sense that we're trying to define what are the enter, entering standards for practice. I think there also would be um, linking up with the beginning work on a common core curriculum about specific content. You know, it matters to me that people who are going to teach elementary school actually can deal with fractions extremely competently. So I would say these assessments and these performances would actually say, no, you know, you can't actually show that you know how to tell teaching time. I want to see that you know how to explain something about ordering fractions on the number line, and I want you to do that in such a way that has, you know, you know where I'm going. That is actually also a difference is to say teaching is about teaching something to somebody as opposed to the article that David Cohen published in, in December that said something about learning to teach nothing in particular, which is another way of saying we have no system because we teach people to teach without helping them teach the actual stuff that, they, that kids need to learn. So here's a hard question. What proportion of students who have been recently certified by schools of education or teacher education programs do you think would pass your test now? I guess I'd just like to ask what proportion of people who are first-year teachers in classrooms this year, uh, of whom there's a very large percentage, how many of them would be able to do that? And I think yeah. the answer is appallingly yeah. low. And I think it has to do, I'm going to keep persisting on this, I think that would be across providers. I don't think that we've sufficiently helped people to learn to do these things. And very smart, committed people are trying to work with kids whom they care about and trying to guess at things that accomplished teachers already know something about how to do mm -hmm. and that we do think we can teach people to do. So can we go back to the question about what are the qualities, whether how, whatever the program looks like or whatever the preparation looks like, uh, you've, you've hinted, or actually more than hinted, explicitly commented on the importance of having experience in the classroom. Uh, maybe you could elaborate a little bit on that, and what are the other qualities of uh, strategies that we would take, whether it's in schools of education or in alternative pathway programs or in districts that are important or you, th you have seen in your experience are critical to make sure the teachers do have these, these important, this important understanding and skills when they first take on the responsibility of educating children? You know, I think that the time in classroom is, again, the time where you really learn what does this look like in the context of the real world and with real kids. Um, but it's interesting that in studies uh, that looked at the, um, how field experience is related to teacher effectiveness after teacher education, the amount of field experience is not related. Having some is, but having more doesn't necessarily mean that you have teachers have greater impact. So to me, it's really how do you use that experience? How do you use experience so that prospective teachers really get a chance to try out some of these practices and get feedback on those practices, and also are in settings where they can see high-quality practice themselves. Too often, a lot of that field experience may be in settings where they're not even seeing the kind of teaching that we're talking about here. So it's very hard, then, to learn it. So I think it's the question of how do you begin to use field experience. Mm -hmm. And then we often think that field, the field, the classroom is the only place you can learn to practice. And I think that's the other uh, problematic part of that belief, is that I think many things that you can learn how to do, you can actually learn initially outside the context of the classroom. So um, in one of my studies, we looked at the preparation of clergy, clinical psychologists, and teachers. And one of the things we saw was that in the preparation of therapists, they are very, very concerned with the ability of the therapist to develop a relationship with the client. 
because if you don't have that therapeutic relationship, no treatment will work. And if you have it, lots of things work. Well, they don't start by assigning a client to the student therapist and having them try to figure it out on their own. They actually use a lot of role plays. They use a lot of simulation. They actually teach them uh, some strategies and techniques in order to do that. And they get quite a bit of coaching before they ever see a client. So that because that's so important, because mm -hmm. it's so fu fundamental, they spend a lot of time in simulated settings before they put people in the real context. And again, I think that's something that we could learn from in teacher education, that these kind of the, an analog to flight simulators, where people are trying out some of these ways of interacting, mm -hmm. some of these ways of eliciting um, student thinking um, outside of the real classroom, because classrooms are somewhat unforgiving places um, mm -hmm. to learn. Medical, uh, a lot of the medical training now is using simulators and uh, that and sort use, of thing. And they use simulations not just for the technical things, so they use it for uh, surgery and learning certain kinds of, but they also use it for emergency room settings. Yeah. So that partly what you're learning is actually how to communicate in this setting, how to work with other people. And again, that's part of the work of teaching. How do you work with yeah. other professionals in communicating about a student to get that student's needs met? At Stanford, they actually employ actors to serve as clients, as patients, so that they have to deal with those issues as well as the, the technical or the actual medical problems. So maybe we should be more creative about thinking of ways to create simulations so that we, our teachers, teachers in training don't practice on real kids. I was at, at a, a, a match, which is both a charter school and a teacher production school somehow, but on Saturdays, their kids come in and they pay them to act like kids. <laughs> and they give them scenarios and teachers come in over and over to practice. Uh -huh. I mean, and it's, it is everything from, you know, nonverbal classroom management while still actually delivering uh, content to meaningful checking for understanding and, you know, noticing that this teacher doesn't do that, so we're just going to do that over and over. And um, I, I just think it, it will take that sort of investment. Mm -hmm. And it's that notion of deliberate practice that comes right. from the work and expertise, that if you're going to get better at something, you actually have to keep doing it mm -hmm. and getting high-quality feedback in order to improve that. I think this is also one of the places where continuing to talk develop more of a language of practice is going to matter. We have a rather imprecise way of talking about teaching, but the examples that both Stephen and Pam are giving help to elaborate that. So an example of something that we were helping um, beginning teachers learn this fall was how to give directions. Sounds like so mundane. Everyone thinks they know how to do that. Actually, in everyday life, people give very poor directions to one another, like finding a location or baking a cake. Turned out there were things to learn, and there were good resources to do it, and they could practice doing it before they then were actually trying to give directions to kids or having small conversations. Teachers have dozens of small conversations with kids. Turned out our interns were really poor at how you crouch by a kid and say, hey, how's it going? And to whom do you say, oh, looks like you've got a haircut. And to whom would you never say that? And you might say, you know, what is that that you brought to school today? And whom do you talk to about what? You could practice that a little bit, but it's really hard to do. You might have 18 conversations within a three-minute period as kids walk into the room. Those are things that you can practice, but until we can name these things and then begin thinking what can be done through simulation, what could be done in actual classroom settings, where do you need to watch videos, as long as we're talking so globally, it's really hard to get to the level of really helping beginners, coaching them, giving them ways to learn these things. So one challenge we face is not just the grain size, but developing a way to talk in a lot more detail about a practice that's currently pretty impoverished for the language that we have to describe it. And I think it's this distinction. There was some very good work uh, by Brigitte Jordan on uh, the training of midwives. And she made the distinction between learning to talk the talk and actually learning the practice. And I think too often in teacher education, our students learn how to talk about the work without actually being able to do it. So one of the things I took away from the study of clinical psychology, we, we watched them spend a lot of time teaching the novices how to respond to resistance. And they said, resistance is inevitable. You're trying to get people to change. When you try to get people to change, at some point, even if they signed up for it, they're gonna say, whoa, enough. Nothing is more predictable in education than resistance at some point, <laughs> right? And yet we spend so little time actually preparing people how to think about in the moment, in that interactive moment, how do you respond to a kid who won't do the assignment? 
maybe just very passively puts their head down and doesn't do it. So in our STEP class, we had a whole discussion about what are the different kinds of resistance, what are the things that you can do, what are some of the moves you might make, what's not productive, getting into an argument with the kid, not productive. So we listed all of these things, we talked about all of these things, and then I said, okay, let's do it. So we had scripts, we borrowed it from clinical psych, we had these scripts, and they role-played it, and I saw them do every single one of the things that we had just talked about not doing, <laughs> including yelling at, the, at their colleague for, you know, just do it, do it already. So again, that distance, we sort of underestimate, I think, yeah. the difficulty of moving from, you know, having sort of an understanding of what you might do to actually doing it in a professional manner. So here's what I hear so far in terms of the qualities of the experiences that people need to become, to meet these standards that we might envision having. One is lots of time to practice. And I understand that the, the amount of, of any of this would vary depending on natural skills or inclinations or whatever, but certainly time to practice, uh, preferably or at least some of the time um, outside of school or when the stakes are not so high for the children that we're practicing on. Uh, good supervision and feedback so that they're learning while they're, while they're practicing and, um, and having good role models, being able to, opportunities to observe and be coached by really effective teachers. Have we missed anything, Steve? Well, can I just, just be sure we, or I would suggest that we have a frame on the list you just gave, which is, these are some of our hypotheses of what it would take to pass Deborah's test, right? But I really worry about going out there with the list that you have, mm -hmm. because it's just, it's more process, right? And when people hear this, I mean, well, what happens guided. is, okay, we're gonna get more hours in the classroom, and that's yeah. happening everywhere, yeah. and it has no meaning for all. If Deborah's test is meaningful, and someone walked in the door who had never been on this planet, much less to a school of education, and could do everything that she called for, we would not do anything with them. Right. We would rush them to the first right. classroom that they have. And I feel like, what, for whatever reason, we're so process-oriented in, in education. Mm -hmm. You know, what people want to know when they come look at our program at Teach for America is, well, how many hours do you talk about this or that, mm -hmm. right? And I just think, gosh, I can tell you that, but honestly, I don't care. You know, it's not right, I'm sure, and it actually needs to be different for our different candidates in a way that we are not, we haven't gotten to. Come look at how much students are learning, and then let's look at, of our teachers who are learning the most, which of those interventions that you're describing mm -hmm. did more of those people get? And are there different profiles of those people? There's some of our core members, I'm just sure about this, they are what they need is practice. That is the intervention by which they change behaviors. There are others that it's not so much practice, it's mindset sort of motivation considerations. What, if we can get this person who is innately super competitive and wants to be best at everything to want their kids to be best at everything, we win. We're there. They are going to soak up all of this. We kind of, and, and so going on and on, I, I, I would not, I don't think the solution is the list that you're suggesting. I think that's a solution of paths to the list that Deborah's talking about. What I would want to really continue to argue about is, is the list of actions that Deborah's test calls for true proxies for kids learning in the way we want a year later? And that's, I think, where we need to focus our attention and let people create, innovate paths to that gateway that we're talking about? Um, let me push back a little because you can trivialize process and say translate it into number of hours or, or that sort of thing. And I, I certainly would not argue for trivializing or trying to quantify these, these sorts of qualities of learning opportunities. But wouldn't, wouldn't it be fair to say that uh, there is or could be a science of preparing teachers just as there is to some degree a science of teaching mathematics to children doesn't mean that it's it's a it's a checklist but there are certain kinds of opportunities that we have learned seem to help people get to this proficiency course, that Deborah's talking about and, so, it, and I choose the term best hypothesis meaningfully I mean I yeah, think that's what absolutely. I mean it's just it would 
in, I think, in my fantasy world, which of those interventions you choose may have something to do with who you're selecting on the front end. Absolutely. And so that we can't define the science very narrowly. We have to say, what are the whole set of ways we have to influence people's behavior? And that includes recruitment, selection, training, support, all of these things. And we can compensate for more and less investment in different areas of that to make up for each other, and that's all great. Um, again, what the history, in my opinion, I think this is true, what tends to happen is we hear, oh gosh, this school, whatever, has longer days. Now everyone is adding two hours to the day for the kids with teachers that aren't making progress anyway, so now we've got... <laughs> right, I mean, it, it is, is, it is running for the silver bullet process mm -hmm. that misses, that is dis detached from the outcome we want. And that's the, like, the big worry that I have that I just yeah. want to keep my, asking that question. My favorite example is principals should spend time in classrooms. It doesn't matter what they do, but right, they should spend right. a lot of time in classrooms. I want to change the question completely because I think we've done a good job of sort of mapping out where we might want to be, what some of the strategies might be to move along the field. Now the question is how do we get from here to there? How do we, whether it's through uh, policies or practices at universities or encouraging more alternative, innovative experimental pathways, how do we move the field to have a clear set of practices that are agreed upon that would be used to determine whether someone was prepared to take the responsibility of teaching children? And how do we develop the kinds of opportunities for people that will actually move them in, in varying amounts of time and through various pathways to being able to demonstrate those skills? Well, one thing I think that we should do is stop arguing about who the players are, because we're going to need a wide range of players. If we want a diverse teaching force, we need a lot of different ways for people to get there. And people bring different kinds of resources to learning to do this work. So I agree completely that we want to make that variable. What I don't want to vary is the output, the result. So I think a group of um, somewhat non-predictable organizations, including some uh, schools of ed or higher ed organizations, some alternative routes, should form a leadership alliance of some sort and demonstrate that it's possible to reach an agreement on a set of things to drive the work forward, share some best practices and hypotheses about different ways that people can be helped to learn to do those things, and begin working on what are the ways that we're going to uh, inspect whether beginning teachers are capable of doing these things, build some of those, try them out, see what we learn from them, and build the R&D agenda to relate that to kids' learning, because the whole thing has to be about improving kids' learning. And all we're trying to do is put scaffolds into that that improve the probability that the people we ask to do this work can get those kinds of results with kids, leave less of that to chance. But I think the starting point is to get a group of uh, non-predictable players. By that I mean not a group of schools of ed, not a group of alternative routes, not one organization. It's not about the organizations. These, all, these organizations actually all bring some different resources to the problem. Get a small set of those to lead the way and bring other people into it to experiment in different settings with it. We don't need, I mean, we're great at finding all kinds of different ways to do things. We're really bad in this country at figuring out, you know what, this is like, go. you know, <laughs> we actually need to work together on this and we need the, the, you know, Teach for America knows a lot about recruitment. We're pretty bad at that. I heard Stephen talk about that earlier. I think that's probably right in general. They know a lot about that. There are other things that some players know that Teach for America is trying to learn. And we're hearing that in these conversations. You know, how do you really make the training of teachers more subject specific? Like, what do you pick? And how do you help people to learn to teach specific content? How do you learn to help people learn to have these relationships with kids and learn to do that relational work? Different, you know, there are things people know. That's, you know, again, I think it's about what are the things we want to be the deal breakers, identify those, and begin working hard on how you enable more people to be able to do them. And in a sense, having these kinds of assessments of those practices helps the R&D agenda because you can begin to see, are these different ways of preparing people to do these things effective and, and enabling them to uh, pass those kinds of performance assessments. But again, the next test is how effective are they once they hit the classroom? And beginning, there's a lot of policy talk right now about holding schools of education accountable for the student achievement mm -hmm. of their graduates. And you know, I think that's going to hold. That's going to create a whole new kind of landscape.
for teacher education programs to really think through, um, are we doing what we need to be doing in order to help our students be effective in those first years? What could we be doing differently? But for the most part, the conversation has been about student outcomes as the determination of whether the, the teachers are well prepared, not what they know and what they can do in any kind of performance assessment that but I think those, those two things have to be brought together. They're, they're right. beginning to come together. Yeah, Stephen. I mean, let me say, I'm going to say something I'm not sure I believe, but just to, I want to like test this. <laughs> your thing to, like, I know this room, like, these are crazy hypotheticals. Imagine we had meaningful, great assessments we believed in. All right? We, imagine we have those. And imagine that we said to teacher producers, we could do this with character sticks. We're going to give you a billion dollars if two years from now, every one of the teachers you produce is a top quartile teacher on this assessment at the end of the year. I think if those things were true, we would all do things somewhat differently, mm -hmm. right? And what I want to ask Deborah is, would you, what I'm wondering is wh whether we should be putting the energy into that list of teacher actions that we think are proxies for that student learning, or we should just go to the student learning, right? If I was running a school of education in that system, every graduate I had would be followed by a coach for that first two years, and I would, I would be right there with them, right? Making sure the practice is good, all of that. I would be recruiting differently, I'd be selecting differently, and the, the meaningfulness of the gateway changes, I think, because I, I um, well, I, I, I want to, well, I guess I would use the gateway to kick people out that I don't want to bet on, right, because I want my billion dollars. Um, and of course, what I really mean is I want all students to learn, but I'm just trying to, like, <laughs> drive, think about the, the market here. The question I have is, I worry that a process gateway that we're talking about, and this is, again, this is the work that I've been working on, is still compensating for our frustration with the assessments down the road. Mm -hmm. And that what we're trying to do is say these are, at some level, we're saying these are things we think and want to create that results. But if we really had the outcomes that we thought, it would put less pressure on that, and we would say, there may be more paths to get there than we are going to create in this filter. I think for accomplished practice, which is, you know, we haven't done a great job in this country of distinguishing between the more and more nuanced work that very accomplished teachers do and the basic, the basic problem of being a first-year teacher or a second-year teacher. So in general, I mean, I taught for a very long time. Certainly the kinds of things I bring to bear and other accomplished teachers do is quite variable. I'm talking about the first year or the first two years. I just, I'm gonna place my bets on giving them some things that good teachers know to do and that the teachers you've looked at know how to do, help them learn to do that, because I want my billion dollars too. I'd rather put some support in the way to make it more likely that more of my graduates will do that, and I'm gonna work assiduously to ensure that they can do those things. I don't want them figuring that out when I know that I could tell them things to do and show them and help them. Can I just, I, but I wanna say that's not, I wasn't saying that I wouldn't do that too, I'm saying, should we have a national attempt at that as a, you know? We need an awful lot of teachers in this country, and you can replicate the scale problem up a level when you realize the range of people that are trying to help teachers be good enough. If we don't put scaffolds in place for those people, all these programs and all these individual and programmatic groups that are trying to supply teachers, we haven't even begun to talk about that capacity problem. So putting something in place that leverages the probability that more of those people coming out of all those places, some of which probably shouldn't be there, so that's another whole conversation, but of those that stay in the business, because we're going to need a variety of ways, some help for those organizations is going to matter. And I think the leadership alliance that I'm proposing could help to boost the system and help to begin to build one. Okay, my boss down here is showing a cue card that says start Q&A. And I'm very obedient. So if you have questions or comments, uh, brief questions or comments, please go to the microphones. Go ahead. Hi, Deborah. 
My question is about TFA's process. If we know that mentoring works, and we know that novice teachers need some support, why is it that TFA doesn't provide that on a daily basis in the classroom and it really provides just someone in a region that a teacher can go to? Why are they in the classroom by themselves from day one? Okay. Um, so, a few, few, first a few just scattered things. Mentoring works, but is only as good as the mentor, period, right? So, uh, we, so we, we have to be sure they're good. Teach for America, when we place people in a classroom, they come with a program director. The ratio is probably not what we would like it to be, 30-something in a lot of places to one. Um, it's very expensive. Uh, the question you know, where I go is, yes, I believe mentoring is important. We work very hard to help our, our core members identify who in this school should be a mentor and latch on to them if we can find people. Frankly, sometimes we have people we do not want to be mentors to our teachers, and, and that's a challenge. Um, again, I would come to say, a, I, don't, I don't think you know, I, I spend a lot of time talking and listening to critiques of Teach for America, and I get a lot of them. I don't think that the process question of why don't you mentor is the question. I think, what are your results, and are you getting good results with, with students? And in general, we are. I mean, we, our curve of effectiveness is way too wide, and we do have struggling teachers that are not performing well, there's no doubt. But we also have, on average, better than a lot of groups, whatever kind of measures we can come up with, our sort of curve is a little bit to the right, and we have a growing fraction of the people at the far end of the curve making dramatic impact even in their first and second year. And, and this is one of the things, I, I just wanna be sure that we acknowledge I, I don't want to accept as a policy that we cannot be successful in the first and second year. And I think that we yeah. have to be successful in the first and second year, and that means we need more support. I, 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 bottom line is, I totally agree with, the, I think, the premise of your point. I'm not sure that I agree that Teach for America is doing this incorrectly, giving our system. Good teachers have mentors from somewhere, and we've gotta give them, we've gotta get them from teachers. We use every ounce of money we can get to create these program directors. Right now in Chicago, we have a pilot where the ratio is half of that, and we will see if the results get better for students. We've done that once before, and to oversimplify, who the program director, the mentor was, was actually louder than having the ratio, which again, tells you something about, if I'm going to invest for us, it's going to be in recruiting and selecting who our coaches are, more than it's going to be that ratio point. Let's go to this side. Um, yes, I'd like to return to your first question, Deborah, which was the, the attack on uh, schools of education, because I'm from England, and our schools of education are suffering exactly the same attack. But the stimulus for that has been the reference to our program called Teach First, which is an exact model of TFA. And what I was really interested in is, do you feel that the, T the Teach First, for us, which is recruit smart, six weeks of training, and in you go, with or without mentors, and that's another issue, is part of the attack that's being made on institutions like yours here? Do you so is the existence of a Teach First or a TFA is part of the reason for the attack is that I think part of the reason for programs like TFA or the teaching fellows was that we didn't have enough teachers going into some of the higher poverty schools. And uh, so the initial strategy is how can we find people who can go and serve in these areas that are very underserved by teachers? Our government is saying, here is an example of a successful model. Why do we need schools of education? Uh, I, 
think so it's... Can I, and can I also clarify that in many places, I, again, I think that the question of either or or the pathway is somewhat misleading because in many places in this country, TFA is partnering with schools of education, including University of Michigan, um, Penn, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere you are, you're right. partnering. So it's not, you know, when I say who's preparing the Teach for America core members, it's often faculty in schools of education. So this distinction is really very, I think, blurry. And I, I, you know, to Teach for America is not, I don't know if anyone believes this, none of us think this is the model that schools of education should take on. It's just, it's not. I think that it is fair to say if there's a program, whether it's Teach for America or Match, which is getting results, Boston Teacher Residency getting pretty good results, if there are programs like these states now that have these teacher preparation report cards where they look and they say, are teachers coming from, we just we look, just got this one from Tennessee, right? Vanderbilt was much more statistically significantly likely to have teachers in the top quartile. There were other production places where in every category their teachers were in the bottom quartile on all the assessments we have of teachers. That is meaningful to the system and I think superintendents given the dearth of knowledge we have, should be acting on that. And I, I would be proud to say that Teach for America or Teach First is getting results that makes people think we should be doing things differently. I would not suggest it should necessarily be like we're doing it. I think that we all have different knobs we're turning and different investments. But, but I don't think Teach First or Teach for America aspires to not have schools of ed or not have other paths. I think it's just an example of we need many paths to get this done. And innovation. Hi. As Deborah and Deborah both know, I'm, I come to this from outside, and I've been listening for a lot of years to a lot of different voices. Um, and there seems to be a spectrum, a great divide, between people who are process-oriented and people who are content-oriented. The attack on teachers on schools of education seems to come from people who are saying, all you need is the content and the relationship with the students and the teaching about how to manage classrooms and so on, none of that matters if you, we'll pull stuff out of, in, people out of industry and just throw them into classrooms. Um, but why can't the two, why do the two sides have so much difficulty hearing each other on this? My impression is you can't teach well without both process and content, am I wrong? I think we've all been agreeing with that. I think it's fundamental that you have to know your content well enough to teach it, which is itself a big deal. And you have to do a lot of relational work and a lot of organizational work and a lot of really careful planning and studying results. I mean, I don't, I don't think any of the three of us disagrees with that. It could be there are other people who simplify that, but I think the three of us, one way or another, roughly agree with that. I, I mean, and I don't know that, you know, I should confess, I am the son of a professor in a school of education, right? So this is like, <laughs> literally 15 years of dinner time, hard conversations. Uh, my concern, it's not, uh, there are, it is possible in the United States to go through teacher preparation programs in systems that are not asking about the path to impact on children of the experiences that those teacher preparation students are getting. And I think that's what actually concerns me about, I don't care whether it's schools of education or anyone else, there are many hours of courses that we've done for years and years or whatever, and it may be that they're good, it may be that they're not, but the question is, how do we know and why aren't we asking of those teachers that are great, which courses did they take and what impact did they have on their behavior? And that's to me the frustration and where schools of education are frankly susceptible to critique any teacher production that doesn't have a narrative about what's the path to impact of what you're doing with this person, I think we should be questioning. And it's been part, I think, of the problem of the research agenda within teacher education for the last decade or two is that it really hasn't been looking at kind of the outcomes of the process and talking much more about how are we preparing people, not what are the outcomes, what can they do, what's their impact on student achievement. So I'm told only one more question, but I'm gonna take two. One here and one there. And for those of you who don't have an opportunity to ask your question, we, you will have an opportunity to speak with our panelists uh, during, the, during the reception. So one over here. So it seems that you all are agreeing that student learning 
is the ultimate measure of effectiveness of teachers and that that's our common goal. Do you think we have an agreed upon definition of what student learning looks like and how to measure that? Because I, I'd like you to address that since that seems to be an essential for us to move forward. You notice that when Stephen was giving us this hypothetical, he made the assumption, he's a lawyer, right? So he always has to put out, here are the assumptions. And the assumption was we had really high quality assessments of the kind of student learning we care about. We don't currently have those. And I think, again, my brother is a doctor, and we were talking about how are doctors evaluated. And some of it is related to outcome, but not all of it is related to outcome because they don't think those outcome measures are perfect. So they also do look at measures of practice and some measures of knowledge. And I think, again, right now, one of the reasons that I'm not quite willing to go entirely without, I think outcomes are very, the student outcomes are ultimately what we're headed at, but I'm not sure that we have good assessments, particularly of some of the higher level kinds of learning that we care about um, and that may not be captured right now in the standardized tests that are used to compute value added. I guess, can I just say something? I mean, I think the reason, I agree with that, but I also think that uh, one reason that the conversation needs to be had is that there's a long history of providers, producers of teachers saying, throwing up their hands and saying it's all because they get out into schools where they can't do any of the things we taught them to do. It's ridiculous. I mean, if we're really trying to prepare people who can make a difference in kids' lives, we've got to be accountable for the results they can get. And we do have the beginnings of an agreement, at least in two subject areas in this country, for the first time ever about what we think kids should learn. Let's get on with it. You know, the perfect, what is that cliche? The perfect is a completely the enemy of any kind of progress. And, you know, they're kids failing, and we could do a lot better. One last question. Thank you so much for tonight. Um, so just as was pointed out that individuals are resistance to change, resistant to change, so are organizations and institutions. And teacher education is, to a large measure, an industry, an industry driven both by politics and by economics. Um, to a large extent, a piece of the problem. Um, they're revenue streams for institutions. Uh, the point of having a coach for every new teacher um, would indeed be an approach to take, but most of the supervisors and people who work in the field are retired teachers, adjunct faculty, um, that do not receive uh, the kind of compensation necessary to maintain uh, the revenue stream. In California, 70% of the teachers are prepared through the state university system. It's a pretty powerful uh, political context to work with. At AERA, and some of you may have been at the meeting that was held with a similar topic that was held at AERA that was not a standing room and it was completely filled, uh, Dr. Darling Hammond suggested the answer to this question that we're dealing with here is the issue of accreditation whether it was NCATE or any other national accreditation. So my question really is, when we look at the political and economic aspect of improving teacher education, I'm interested in your own feelings about how to really address this, talk about a granular level at a much more policy and political level. Deborah, you run the School of Education. Can you answer that? Well, I'm not sure I understood the question exactly, whether we should invest more in Accreditation, is that his question? What is his question? Schools, that schools of education can also be resistant to change. And if we come up with very different criteria for credentialing teachers, how do we get schools of education or any organization, TFA or any other organization, to actually change to be able to produce okay, I guess if we work backwards from you, don't get to practice on kids if you can't do these things, then organizations that can get teachers who can do those things and who can get results with kids will be in business and those who can't won't. I, I don't quite follow the question exactly. The, we drive backwards from the yeah. people we care about, which are children and their learning. I think I can tell you that if, if none of our STEP students were getting uh, credentialed, we'd change. They will, of course, whatever the performance assessment. Okay, I've just been asked to have one, one other question over here. Um, um, okay, so um, actually, so I've, I'm a fourth year here, and I've taught both in the Stanford Teacher Education Program and at Teach for America Summer Institute, actually, so I've had fun experiences at both, but one of the things that strikes me about both is that they're extremely selective programs, extremely. And so in thinking about, um, in thinking about moving forward and sort of thinking about partnering and sort of 
these sort of larger pictures of a system, I'm wondering about how you'll be able to talk across the system with people who have that much wider pipeline at the, at the front that you referenced, Stephen. So like, what, what are going to be some of the challenges of working between very selective and not very selective programs? I'm, make, um, I'm, I'm taking a position that, while I don't disagree that some programs can afford to be that selective, we need millions of teachers. So I'm far more concerned about who gets out of these pathways and what they can do then than how they get in. It's fine with me to have some programs that are highly selective, but we're not going to get there to what we need without recruiting what I would call relatively ordinary adults who are willing to work really hard and where we can be accountable for what they can do. I'm far more worried about the exit than the entrance. Doesn't mean I don't think recruitment matters, but my concern is much more about that. And one response to this, um, in the work we did in New York where we looked at the impact of different pathways on student achievement, you know, in most, so Teach for America does slightly better in middle school math, maybe not so quite so well in um, elementary school reading, but on average they look pretty similar. Well, these are people who started at different points in terms of that selectivity. So on one hand, you have to think of it as a triumph of uh, preparation. Those people took longer, who went through traditional routes, took longer to be prepared. People who went through TFA, much more selective, you select for some of those characteristics a shorter route to that. But then this is the notion of multiple pathways. You take people in at different places, you've got to provide different kinds of preparation for them. Uh, but you want to get them, I think the point is, get them to the same place. Sort of decrease the variability of the effectiveness once they come out of the system. So you're talking about differentiated instruction for teachers, just like for kids. So we want you to always remember this opportunity. Um, so this will remind you every time you wear it of being at Stanford. And same to you, Stephen. So a round of applause for our panelists. Thank you very much for a very engaging conversation. And please uh, have refreshments with us. And, and now you have an opportunity to ask the questions you didn't have an opportunity to ask before. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.